You are listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. Recently named one of Christianity Today's 12 podcasts you don't want to miss, 2021, I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff, and uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad, uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks, so they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes, uh, and these things are high quality, and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris eight at S A M O R R I S numeral eight at Sam Morris eight on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote. Uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. Well, if you keep up with the news at all, you realize that, uh, there, there's almost an epidemic of false convictions in uh, the United States, there's someone every single day that's exonerated after a long time in jail because they were falsely convicted. Either there was missing evidence or there was planted evidence or there was prosecutorial misconduct or there was inefficient defense. Uh, all kinds of things contribute to this uh, epidemic of uh, injustice in the United States. Well, my guest today is a former prosecutor and a former defense attorney, so he has a unique perspective. He's also a Christian. He has a seminary degree, so his perspective on justice is informed both by his experience and by his theological training, his biblical perspective on the issue. So I hope that you'll give it a listen, and I hope that you'll also share it with folks who are kind of skeptical that such a thing as systemic injustice can exist or that they're under the thinking that the United States criminal justice system is the best thing since sliced bread. Everybody gets the even chance. Everybody gets an even break. Uh, and that every verdict that is returned is a just and fair verdict. And that Lady Liberty or Lady Justice certainly has her scales balanced and her eyes covered. Uh, and I hope that they will be they would be dispelled of some of those notions as a result of listening to my interview with Matthew Martins. My guest today is Matthew Martins. He, uh, his website says he's a Christian and a lawyer. So if you ever wondered whether those things could happen at the same time, apparently they can, or at least by his testimony, they can or something like that. Uh, so you've been a lawyer for almost 26 years. That's right. I have. Uh, is that the only thing you've ever done? I mean, like out of, I mean, like out of high school and college. Yeah, I went straight from college to law school and then straight from law school to being a lawyer in one form or another since May of 2000 or 1996. So yeah, 20, 26 years next month. Wow. That's fantastic. But you clerked for Rehnquist. Is that, is that right? Uh, it is true. Yeah. After law school, I did first a judicial clerkship with a federal court of appeals judge and then the next year, 1997-98, I was a law clerk to William Rehnquist when he was Chief Justice, Justice of the United States. Okay, so for the benefit of myself and maybe people who are listening who don't, who, who've always heard that, like we've heard, we've watched Law and Order for a million episodes, we've heard that clerking for the court business. Um, can can I safely assume that you weren't just like cataloging cases and like heading to the filing cabinet and taking 
phone memos that's a little more than that? Yeah, clerk is probably a weird uh, way to describe the job or a weird title to give it. So the job is essentially um, advisor, uh, researcher, writer for the justice. So you would do research about the cases uh, that are pending before the court, uh, discuss particular arguments or issues with the justice. And then after the justices decide, if your justice is assigned to draft the case, you would provide a first draft of the opinion based on guidance from the justice and make edits and the revisions and then manage the process of getting other justices to agree to the opinion as written. So it's kind of a, a case analyzer, researcher, writer for the justice for a year. Wow. So I won't ask you if there's a case that I can look up that you wrote that didn't get much editing done after you handed it in to the chief justice, but I am curious about that fact. Yeah, that's kind of like poor form to ever for a clerk to ever say that. So we always maintain the rule that the justice wrote the opinion. So Matthew Martin's ghostwriter for William Rehnquist at some point. Yeah, I wouldn't say that. I would say he's the, he wrote the opinions. I'm just there to help. <laughs> oh, man. So you've worked as a federal prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to uh, to talk to you today. So Matthew Martins, welcome to Uncommentary. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here, Marty. So, of course, we met on Twitter, and um, one of the ways that we connected, I guess, was um, you have an interest in criminal justice. Uh, I have an interest in uh, criminal justice as it relates to biblical justice, and I don't mean to imply that you don't, but uh, initially it was criminal justice that I was following you about on Twitter. Uh, saw that you really were looking for uh, biblical um, informing of what that meant, trying to bring uh, a biblical approach to how you thought about uh, systemic, injustice, systemic injustice. And uh, so I started following you, and, and you're, I mean, you never miss, uh, literally, uh, maybe once, and I called you out on it, but, you know, it, it wasn't too bad. Uh, but, no, I really, really appreciate what you have to say. And so I wanted to have you on so that we could talk about some of these things. So I want you to start, if you will, um, and kind of give a, a baseline definition of justice and what systemic injustice would look like in, let's just say, American society? Sure. So uh, this is a topic that's of interest to me. I'm not only a lawyer, but I also have a seminary degree from Dallas Seminary. And so uh, I have hope I've done a reasonably good job of trying to apply biblical thinking to the concept of justice. You know, going back at least to Augustine, Christians have defined justice to use Augustine's words as giving to every man his due. So there's a there's two, I think, components to that that we can't lose sight of. It's first giving people their due, giving people what they're owed. And the other component is giving to every man what they're due. It's sort of an equality, a consistency, um, not just justice in, the, in an individual case, but justice across cases. Uh, treating treating people uh, consistently. So some, that means treating similar cases similarly and dissimilar cases dissimilarly. Mm -hmm. So giving every person what they're due or what they're owed. And I think when you read Christian ethics writing across the ages, what you see is that consistently the writers go back to 
the parable of the Good Samaritan and the question by the lawyer, the questions by the lawyer leading up to that, um, where Jesus responds that we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves, that that is sort of the fundamental, those are the fundamental principles of Christian ethics. You see that in Augustine's writing again, for example, uh, in City of God, and that our um, so what we owe people, what people are due to get back to the question of justice is our love. Mm. Um, and what love's going to mean in a particular context will differ, but I think fundamentally justice is giving people their due and what they are due is our love. Now there's, there's hard questions, um, to be worked out about what does it mean to love in a particular context? What mm-hmm. does it mean to love in the context of economic policy? What does it mean to love in the context of just war theory? What does it mean to love in the context of international relations? And one of the things I'm trying to explore in a book I'm writing now is what does it mean to love, to love our neighbor as ourselves or in the criminal justice system, I think it's actually to love our neighbors, plural, both the accused and the victimized. What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? And that's one of the things I'm trying to work out. So let me, uh, let me jump in in my book. And yeah. um, ask you, because I've seen this objection. Thankfully, I don't see it a lot, but I have seen this objection. You say that justice is giving people what they're owed. And some will say, well, no one is owed anything because we're all sinners. And the only good thing that ever happens to us is because of the grace of God. And of course, I, you know, almost no Christian would object to that statement as a generalization. But somehow it seems like that that's an incorrect application to say, well, if somebody's falsely accused and they're going to spend the rest of their life in prison or they're on death row because they were falsely wrongly convicted, that they're not owed anything because the fact that they're still alive means that they've gotten more than they were owed because no man is owed anything because we're all sinners. Draw some kind of a distinction that would help someone who has heard that uh, be able to say, well, of course we're all sinners. But that doesn't mean that we sit around on our hands when people are unjustly, you know, falsely accused or falsely convicted just because we're all sinners. Yeah. So I think what I would say to that is that there's there's a difference between God doesn't owe me anything. Uh, God acts toward me according to his character, not because he owes me anything, but because of who he is. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's different from my obligation to my fellow man. I do have moral obligations to my fellow man. Uh, and I think philosoph- uh, theologians and philosophers have recognized that throughout the ages. I mean, the whole issue of moral proximity, um, uh, the idea that there are people to whom we have a greater duty, right? So I have a greater duty, scripture tells me, to my family. You know, it talks about those who don't care even for their household, mm. right? There's a, there's a moral obligation. I have a duty toward those people, all derived from, I believe, ultimately just expressions of my duty to love my neighbor as myself. And once Christ gives me a command to love my neighbor as myself, I have a duty to do that. And they are owed, they are due Mm. that love. I think that's exactly what scripture teaches. I do have an obligation to my fellow man. God doesn't have obligations to me. Mm -hmm. He acts out of his character toward me. Okay. You have a, you talk a lot on Twitter about uh, people who are wrongly convicted uh, about people who are serving sentences that are unjustly long, uh, people who are exonerated after having been in prison for 10, 20, 30 years. 
uh, based on new evidence or based on the fact that um, evidence was withheld from their trials that could have uh, exculpated them. Um, I think that's the right word. It sure sounded good. Yes. Um, so let's dig in a little bit to the American system of justice. And we'll, I'm going to stick with America because it's the one that I'm the most familiar with. I'm an American citizen, so it's the one that... Um, Thankfully, I haven't had to be in touch with very often, uh, and it's usually only to pay a ticket or something like that. <laughs> um, but from my study and from hearing people's testimony and reading stories like the ones that you, t- you tweet frequently, um, there, there is a problem. And we can, at, we can at the same time say, I guess, America, America has a great criminal justice system, and at the same time say it has a lot of problems that need to be addressed and it's definitely not the greatest thing since sliced bread. So address some of those things that you've seen, both from your experience as a prosecutor and defense attorney, that have led you to conclude conclusions that you think warrant you writing a book. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot in there. I just offer a couple comments to try to answer that. So first of all, I don't think the relevant question is whether our system is the best system there's ever been. Mm-hmm. I think the, the question is really one of stewardship. Is it the best system that it, we can have right. given the stewardship we have in this moment in history? Right. We, have a, we are a particular people in a particular place with particular economic resources, with particular scientific resources. We live in a particular moment of history and the question with, with resources given to us that aren't given to others, mm-hmm. even in this day and age, but certainly in other days and uh, ages. And so the question, the first question I think is, is are we stewarding what we have well to, to be as just as we can be Mm -hmm. Uh, recognizing that we will as fallible human beings fall something short of perfect justice, this side of eternity. The the second point about accurate, what what you've raised really is an issue of accuracy in our system. And I think the fundamental principle of love as played out in a justice system is the principle of accuracy. The core of loving your neighbor as yourself when it comes to criminal justice is getting it right, Mm. getting accurate outcomes. It is unloving to both the victim and to the accused to reach inaccurate results. There's no, to reach an inaccurate result is to lie to the victim, Mm -hmm. to tell them that we got them justice, we didn't get them. And it is to do harm to an accused who doesn't deserve it, and, and thus who we are not morally authorized by Scripture to take, to take action against. Mm-hmm. Romans 13 says that, we're, that the government is entitled by God, they're divinely ordained, to bear the sword against wrongdoers. Mm-hmm. I think that's the key. Yeah. We have no divine authorization to bear the sword against the innocent. Yeah. I mean, it's an obvious point. But it's a critical point because that means the government commits a moral wrong when it wields the sword against the innocent. And the wrong is done not only to the wrongly convicted, but it's also, done to the, as I said, to the, to the victim who's wrongly told, who's falsely told that justice has been done in their case. Mm. And, and you know, today we know, just as an example, through DNA technology, we know as a fact a sci- as much as you can know anything, we know is a scientific fact that people have been wrongly convicted. And, and I, one of the good things is people actually recognize that reality today. It's mm-hmm. not that long ago that it would have been scoffed at 
the idea that there were any material number of wrongful convictions in our system scoffed at by federal judges, like literally openly scoffed at the idea that that was a material issue. Mm. Uh, It wasn't until after DNA technology in 1989 that we now know, and not all the exonerations since 89 have been through DNA technology, right? um, but many of them, a good number of them. But since 1989, uh, we know that there have been about 3,050 people exonerated after, con- meaning they were convicted of a crime, um, and then later we determined not they were not guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those were, I don't mean legally not guilty, I mean factually didn't do it. Right, yeah. Some of them caught very quickly within months. The longest of them, I think 43 years a man oh, spent in prison. Mm. Um, you know, and many of them in between and lengthy sentences that we know people have been wrongly convicted. And here's the thing that there's good reason to be concerned that there's many we're not catching because in a lot of cases you don't have DNA. It's just not relevant to the case. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, or, or it might be, but there's no DNA material to test, um, many offenses, the prison sentence might come have come and gone, you know, relatively quickly. Somebody might get three months or six months or a year. And no one, the reality is that the innocence projects of the world aren't devoting their res- their limited resources to those cases. Mm-hmm. So the ones that we're figuring out are the ones with long, long sentences for the most part. Yeah. Um, the question is, if we're getting at this wrong in, in, 187 death penalty death sentences that's how many we've gotten wrong since 1976 187 people sentenced to death who didn't commit the crime wow two percent of death sentences since 1976 have been a people who are factually innocent um if we're getting two percent of death sentences wrong with all the resources thrown at that Mm -hmm. what percentage of much less serious cases are we getting wrong where much less in terms of resources is being thrown at them. Is there a, is there an estimate? I mean, I've heard as high as 10%. I, I, I struggle to believe that it's that high, but I'm not saying it can't be that high. Is there a studied and a, like a, a theoretically accurate estimate of what that number is? There, there isn't. Um, people have tried to back into it different ways. And I think the estimates are all that I've seen are all sub 10%. So mm-hmm. they've gone at it various ways by starting with, for example, interviewing convicts, uh, prisoners, and asking them whether they're innocent. And you'd be surprised, not everybody claims they are. Right. Um, and saying that, and, and so it's that's not saying, well, everyone who says they are is innocent, but saying kind of what percent say they are innocent, because the truth then is probably something less than that, but not more than that. Mm-hmm. So that's one way that criminologists have gone at it. And those estimates kind of on the outside is, that studies I've seen are like in the eight to 10% range. Mm-hmm. So it's it, inevitably not everyone there is telling the truth right, right. Uh, about their innocence. So I think it, I do think there's probably good reason to think for most crimes, it's single digits. Um, but, but there is, but that's still tens of thousands of people. Uh, who are being wrongly convicted mm. every year Wow! in a country our size. So you're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is Matt Martins. Okay, so in the last, I don't know, for you it probably is a long time, but in, in kind of like popular culture, in uh, conservative kind of evangelical circles anyway, 
the last couple of three years, there's been a, an ongoing conversation about systemic injustice. And I realize that when I say last couple of three years, some listeners are going to say, man, are you crazy? Uh, and I would just say that in conservative evangelical circles, yeah, it may sound crazy, but it's just not been a huge topic of conversation for the longest time in the world. But it is right now and has been for a bit. And some people still struggle with the idea. I'm not even talking about the ones who outright deny that it can even exist. Some just struggle with the idea of what is systemic injustice, because I think some people take it to mean that they are somehow guilty of something that they didn't have anything to do with. But that's not what it's about. So why don't you explain what your idea of systemic injustice is, both from your theological studies and your legal uh, experience, and then talk about why you think it's such a problem. So I, I do think the definition is important. And so when I think of and when I speak of systemic injustice, what I'm what I'm talking about is organize the, the, the rules and laws that organize society or a part of society and do so in a way that's unjust. Mm-hmm. So let me try to pr- provide a distinction. If, if I were to steal from you, commit a crime and steal your money. Oh, you would be the first one. Well, I, okay. But, you know, if I were to do that, and I, I promise I won't do that. Okay, but if I thanks. were, uh, I wouldn't call that a systemic injustice. It would be an injustice. Mm-hmm. And whether we want to call it a personal injustice or an individualized injustice, um, it, it's an injustice for sure, but I don't put that in the category of systemic injustice. But it, let's imagine that the law allowed me to steal your money. Mm-hmm. The law was written in a way that allowed me to steal your money. That would be systemic injustice. Society would be organized in a way that facilitated my individual injustice against you. So in that context, if I stole your money, I would be committing an individual injustice, uh, a direct injustice against you. But it would be facilitated by, it would be made possible by the fact that the system the societal system is organized in a way that doesn't restrain me from doing that. In fact, mm-hmm. allows me to do that. Mm-hmm. And you might say, oh, that's a fanciful a hypothetical. It's actually the hypothetical of America, because for the first hundred years of our country, or nearly hundred years, up through 1865, we not only had people stealing other people's labor, we had a system that facilitated that, that mm-hmm. said, not only aren't we going to stop it, we're going to put rules around it to facilitate one man stealing the labor from of another man. And so just that simple example, I think, demonstrates that in that instance, the slave owner would be con- committing an injustice, but the society would be part of a systemic injustice. Society would be organized as a system in a way to facilitate those individual wrongs. So that's what that's just one example of what I mean by systemic injustice. And this isn't I couldn't care less whether this is a critical theory concept or a critical race theory, because this idea of a system that is unjust and an organized system that is unjust is actually a biblical idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's found perhaps most clearly in Isaiah 10, verse one, which says, woe to those who make unjust laws to those who issue oppressive decrees. Isaiah recognizes, scripture recognizes that the law can be organized uh, and written in a way that makes society unjust. Uh, It's not just woe to those 
who do evil things to one another, though it is woe to those, mm-hmm. but it's also woes to the, who, those who at a systemic level make the laws unjust to facilitate these individual acts of unjust injustice. So what would be um, an, an example of systemic injustice? So slavery, I think most, not everybody, unfortunately, but most people would agree, okay, slavery is the obvious example. They're not just stealing labor. Sometimes they're stealing the laborer. So um, yeah. we all can agree, you know, most of us can agree that systemic injustice. What's an example that's closer to our era that might be like, help people see, okay, I, I could see how this might could still be going on and not just something that happened way in the past. Sure. I'll give you two examples from the criminal justice system. So as early as I believe 1878, the U S Supreme court in a case called Strouder versus West Virginia ruled that it was impermissible to exclude people from juries on the basis of race in criminal, in criminal cases. Mm -hmm. And this was a practice uh, back in that time because it allowed uh, in the Jim Crow era and, and back much earlier to the founding of the country, it allowed uh, whites to render verdicts in cases involving blacks in ways that would pervert justice, mm-hmm. um, that, would, that would favor uh, the white interests over the black interest. Uh, and after the Supreme Court ruled that in 1878, uh, what we see through a series of court, Supreme Court decisions is increasingly ingenious ways to exclude African-Americans from juries. This didn't end in 1878. It didn't end in 1888. It didn't end in 1978. Mm. It was until 1987 that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, um, said that the use of what are called peremptory challenges meaning you can exclude people from juries, a juror for a cause. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they know some party in the case. Uh, you know, they were friends with the defendant or friends with the police officer. That's a cause challenge. Mm-hmm. But then but then both the defense lawyers and prosecutors have what are called peremptory challenges, which is you can eliminate a certain number of jurors for no reason at all. Right. And and so that became kind of the last battleground over excluding African-Americans from juries. Mm. And those peremptory challenges become powerful because if you've got a society where African-Americans might make, you know, make up 13% of the population, roughly, mm-hmm. on a jury, you're going to have one or two out of 12. So if you have some peremptory challenges, you can get all the African-Americans off the jury. Mm-hmm. And it's not until 1987 uh, in a case called Batson versus Kentucky, that the Supreme Court finally says that's unconstitutional. 1987. Wow. They're uh, all over it. Yeah. It's 1992 <laughs> when the Supreme Court says the defense lawyer can't do that because and it was in a case of um, whites, white defendants committing violence against uh, African-American victims. And the white defendants wanted all the African-Americans off the jury, where usually it's the other way around, that the prosecution wants them off. Mm-hmm. And so it's not until 1992, when I'm 20 years old, when I'm, a, when I'm in college, uh, that, the, that the Supreme Court finally says, you can't do that. This isn't ancient wow. history. This isn't 1878. This yeah. is 1992. But then you might say, okay, Matt, better late than never. At least <laughs> 1992 is still now 30 years ago. You know, haven't we put that to rest? 
And to, to answer to that, I would point you to the 2019 case at the United States Supreme Court called Flowers versus Mississippi, where Curtis Flowers was tried six times for murder. Mm-hmm. So much and for double was, jeopardy. Well, so so he, I could get into that, but it doesn't yeah. violate double jeopardy. I think everybody <laughs> agrees on that, but it's a complicated answer as to why yeah, a lawyer. I get answer. it. Yeah. So he's tried six times for murder. First three times he's convicted when the prosecutor eliminates all the blacks from the jury. Each time the Mississippi Supreme Court reverses the case, the first two times, I think, for other prosecutorial misconduct, the third time for a Batson, what's called a Batson violation. He goes back for his fourth trial. Several African-Americans make it onto the jury, hung jury. Fifth trial, several African-Americans make it onto the jury, hung jury. Sixth trial, African-Americans not on the jury, he's convicted. Each of the four times he's convicted, sentenced to death. Wow. Goes up to the United States Supreme Court in 2019. And in a, in a decision by Brett Kavanaugh, the court says, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> it says, you struck 41 of 42 black jurors that you had peremptory challenges to strike, you the prosecutor. And you want us to believe that none of this was based on race. You've got to be kidding me. Um, And sends the case back in a decision written by Brett Kavanaugh, at which point the prosecutor drops the case. Oh, oh, you're going to make me actually try the guy in front of a fairly selected jury? I'll drop the case after the man spent, I believe, 29 years on death row in Parchman Prison in Mississippi. Mm. Um. So this is, again, this is not this this idea of skewing justice Mm. at a systemic level by a practice where the system uh, is allowing African-Americans to be excluded as jurors in cases where African-Americans are defendants. This is not ancient history. Yeah, Um, this is a ongoing practice today. So that's just one example. Another is there's a Supreme Court case called uh, Brady versus Maryland, a case from the 1960s in which the Supreme Court said that as an element of due process, if the prosecutor has in the course of the investigation, or the police investigation or the grand jury investigation, accumulated evidence that suggests that you're innocent, the prosecutor has to hand that over. Mm-hmm. Now, that shouldn't be a controversial topic, right? We, we should all agree that if the government has evidence that you didn't do it, they should have to give that to you so you can use it in front of the jury um, and the jury can fairly sort out on all the evidence uh, whether or not you're guilty. But as late as, two, I think it's 2013, a, a federal court of appeals judge appointed by President Reagan said, and I quote, there is an epidemic of Brady violations in the, in the land. That's his assessment mm-hmm. sitting on the U.S. Court of Appeals that there is an epidemic of prosecutors, his word, epidemic, of Mm -hmm. prosecutors violating their obligation to hand over evidence of innocence. Again, the system is functioning in a way that is skewing just outcomes in cases. Just two examples. let let uh, Let me drill down on that for just a second because I think it's important because the system is not requiring these prosecutors to violate Brady. The, the, the law does not require the prosecutors to violate Brady, but somehow or another, the culture of prosecution 
encourages or allows or whatever the right word would be there, these violations. So my question is, how much of those particular things, the Brady violations, withholding evidence that could possibly uh, help a defendant, how much of that is related to a culture of uh, we're the prosecutors, we need a 100% conviction record, I'm running for office again next time, next term, and I can't have Joe Schmo walking free on this high-profile case, so we're going to bury this, you know, this evidence in the evidence locker and put the wrong case number on it so it'll never be found, blah, 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 blah. So clearly those are individual decisions. So I, I kind of doubt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, as a former prosecutor, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I kind of doubt that the DA of Nashville or Davidson County is calling up the DA in Roanoke, Virginia, saying, hey, give me some pointers on how to hide evidence that could possibly uh, release this guy that's probably innocent, but I've got you know phone logs here that show that he was across the country when the crime was committed. But there seems to be a cultural, uh, okay, what, what all is informing this that makes it systemic when it appears to be individual? Yeah, so I think that's an excellent question. And here's what I would say, that the system that you have to look at is more than just uh, Brady, the Brady decision, right? If you just focus on the Brady decision, you might say, Matt, that it actually seems like there's not an injustice, like the law to take your verse uh, in Isaiah, the, the the decree is a just one. The law mm-hmm. is a just one that they must hand it over. But I think mm-hmm. you have to look at the system more broadly and say, is the system, the legal system, organized in a way that ensures compliance and and promotes accountability when there's mm-hmm. not compliance? Good. Right. There's more to the to the just laws. There's more to the system. There's more to the decrees, to use Isaiah's word, than mm-hmm. just the Brady decision. You have to look at the apparatus around it and say, what is the mechanism that ensures compliance and whole and, and promotes accountability when there's a lack of compliance? So you want to. So part of the answer to that question is that there is essentially no mechanism to to hold uh, prosecutors who violate this rule accountable. So what do I mean by that? Sort of two things. One, in essentially there's there's been less than a handful of prosecutors who have ever suffered criminal sanctions themselves for violating Brady. Mm-hmm. The, the stiffest sentence ever handed out was in the case of a man, uh, Michael Morton in Texas, who was wrongly imprisoned for 25 years based on a Brady violation. He lost 25 years of his life. And the prosecutor, who in that instance was criminally prosecuted for a Brady violation, got five <laughs> days. Wow. Days. Whoa, whoa, days. No. days. Yeah, yeah. Not five years, five days. Oh, my God. For costing a man 25 years of his life. So, if that's the if that's the worst case scenario you're yeah. facing, if you violate Brady is five days in jail when you can cost somebody 25 years of life. The system is organized in a way that doesn't promote accountability. But yeah. there's a second element of it. Lots of people have heard of what's called qualified immunity. So this has mm-hmm. maybe gotten into the public consciousness a little bit as a result of police misconduct cases. And it's a It's a a made up rule by the Supreme Court, literally made up out of nowhere, 
There's no text in the relevant statute that even mentions anything like this. But the Supreme Court made up this notion of qualified immunity, which says in only very, 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 very limited circumstances can police be sued for money damages for violating your constitutional mm-hmm, rights. Mm-hmm. That's bad enough. But yeah. what people don't know about is what's called absolute immunity, which means not that it's like very, 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 very limited. It's it's entirely eliminated. The, guess who gets absolute immunity for violating your constitutional rights? Well, it ain't Prosec- me. Prosecutors. Oh, man. Prosecutors get absolute immunity against federal civil rights lawsuits for violating your constitutional rights. So yes, we the, the the Brady decree itself is just, but the system, the apparatus around it isn't built to hold prosecutors accountable for the violations of Brady. Wow. And so so the system, I would argue, is organized in a way that does not promote just, meaning accurate mm-hmm. outcomes in cases. Okay, one more thing, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, I've seen you talk about this a little bit, and that's the issue of plea bargaining. Um, I mean, everybody who's ever seen an episode of any crime show on television realizes that uh, plea bargains are real. I don't know that everybody understands exactly how prevalent they are. Uh, In Law & Order, for instance, the TV show, every case almost goes to trial. Um, You know, there's no, you know, plea bargains exist. Sometimes they take place after the trial has already started. Uh, but everybody goes to trial on law and order. You get your day in court and, uh, that doesn't appear to be the case. And even worse than that, it appears to be that plea bargains are used as a way to shut down people from getting their day in court, uh, by holding over them the 25 years or, Hey, if you'll just take this deal, you don't have to go to court and you'll only serve four years. So talk a little bit about what plea bargains were maybe originally intended to be and kind of how they, they function in reality today. Yeah, so I think people are surprised when sort of for the reasons you identified because they watch TV shows and and TV um, crime dramas are not about plea bargaining generally. They're about the trial, right? Nobody's going to nobody's going to make a TV show about negotiating a plea agreement. (laughs) Uh, And but so I think people don't realize that somewhere in the range of 94 to 97 percent of cases every year are resolved through plea bargains. Mm -hmm. Um, just to take a, a couple examples from uh, the last few years, in the state of Rhode Island last year, uh, 100% of federal criminal cases pled out. Wow. 100%. Um, I, I was reading a study recently by some law professors who were looking at uh, trials across the state of North Carolina between the years of, I believe it was 2011 to 2013. So that three-year period, they went to each county in North Carolina attempting to identify how many trials, criminal trials that occurred each year. And 10 of North Carolina's 100 counties reported zero trials in three years. Wow. Uh, so the overwhelming percentage of, of criminal cases are resolved through guilty pleas, through plea bargaining. Uh, I, I think there's a couple of things people need to know about plea bargaining. I think people know what it is generally, which is the idea that you're charged with X and it carries a penalty of, of you know, Y years in prison. Um, but if you plead either to X or you plead to some lesser charge than X, we'll give you some number of years in prison that's less than Y. Mm. Uh, and, and what I tell people all the time is 
I don't care what your position on criminal justice is. I don't care whether you view yourself as sympathetic to defendants or or a law and order person or a crime victims right advocate, wherever you, you put yourself on the political spectrum or on the ideological spectrum when it comes to criminal justice, everybody should hate plea bargaining. Mm. Everybody should hate plea bargaining. And I say that for this reason, that if the just sentence is why years in prison, if that's the just outcome here, then that should be the outcome whether or not somebody goes to trial or pleads guilty. Uh, if, but, but, but what the reality is is that why years in prison, whatever that number is for the particular crime, isn't actually in most instances the just sentence. That, mm. that threat of an extended time in prison is used as leverage mm -hmm. to get people to plead guilty. They're threatened with something that is excessive in order to get them to plead guilty um, to something that might actually yield a just sentence. So, so mm. let me give you just a recent example out of the news last couple of months. There's a woman in Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, who was charged with uh, voting fraudulently, voting when she wasn't allowed to vote because she had, I believe it was a prior criminal record that kept her from voting. And she refused to plead guilty. She thought she thought this was actually all an honest misunderstanding, didn't think she should be charged, wanted her day in court. I have no opinion one way or the other on the merits of whether she had a good defense or not. Um, she was offered um, the opportunity to plead, plead guilty to a misdemeanor and get no jail time. Mm -hmm. She chose to go to trial, was convicted and sentenced to six years in prison. Now, those can't both be just sentences, right? Right. I can quibble with you over, you know, if a if a crime if a crime should get a six year sentence, we could quibble over, you know, well, would five and a half be just? Would six and a half be just? Right? Like, there's yeah. a margin of error where reasonable people of good faith could disagree, or where perhaps all of those sentences in that range could be just. But no time in jail, and six years in jail, those wow. can't both be just outcomes. Uh, and yeah. and so and so the, an outcry arose. You you can Google this yourself and read about this case. An outcry arose saying that's an outlandish sentence, six years in in prison for um, this crime. And the prosecutor's response was, "It's her fault for going to trial." Yeah, her fault for exercising her constitutional and, rights. And just all right. I want to yeah. bang my head on. You yeah. mean it's her fault for for exercising her constitutional right? I mean, yeah, this is right. like saying to people. Uh, this is the example I use. Everybody, probably your listeners, believe in religious liberty, right? So imagine um, that, I, that I'm the mayor of your town, and I say to you, uh, we're going to start fining people who go to church. And you're like, well, you, you can't do that, the First Amendment. I said, no, no, I'm not stopping you. You can go to church, perfectly free to go to church. I'm just going to fine you if you do. You'd be like, you know, Matt, that's not how it works. Like the First Amendment says you, you can't <laughs> stop me from going to church, but you also can't penalize me for going to church. I'd be like, that's right. But when it comes to jury trials, we say to people, you can go to trial. It's fine. I'm not stopping you, but I'm going to penalize you when right. you do. Right. And, and I just I said, that's bananas. Yeah, it's just wrong. <laughs> we wouldn't accept wrong. that for any constitutional right that we hold dear. Yeah. We would never say it's okay to penalize me for exercising it. And, and it's just as wrong to be penalizing people for insisting on a trial and penalizing people to the tune of six years 
when we know full well, at worst, this is the misdemeanor, no jail time yeah. uh, situation where those both can't be just outcomes. And so even if you think six years is just in that case, you should be outraged that we're offering people no jail. Good, and great. if you think the just outcome is no jail and a misdemeanor, then you should be outraged that we're, we're that we're putting people in jail for six years. It can't they can't both be just. And so Matt, everybody should be outraged by this. What's the name of your book going to be? So my book coming out in May of 2023, so just about a year from now, is entitled Reforming Criminal Justice, a Christian Proposal. And it's being as, published by Crossway, is that right? It's being published by Crossway. And as I say, it is a Christian proposal. I don't claim infallibility. <laughs> uh, I hope this is the beginning That's a different of a episode. Christian discussion about what justice should look like um, in our day and age with our, with our stewardship at this moment in time. Excellent. So your uh, website is Matthew-Martens, M-A-R-T-E-N-S dot com. What's your Twitter handle? It is at Martens, M-A-R-T-E-N-S, Matt, M-A-T-T-1, at Martens, Matt, 1. And you can link to my website from my Twitter uh, bio as well. Excellent. Matt Martens, thanks so much for hanging out today, man. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.